Here we go. Okay, everybody, this is uh, Bar Crawl Radio, and uh, we usually come out of Gephards, but... Um, but Becky and I are not at Gephards. Where are we right now? We're crawling. We went to a different bar. We yeah, we're at a, we're different. Actually, this is a bar we've been to before, Gabriella's. Yeah. On 93rd and Columbus. Correct. And we did a podcast here not so long ago with Raphael um, Raphael Espinal. Exactly. Right from the uh, the. Um, Council person from Brooklyn. I think District 37. I want to say. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that. That sounds right. And your sister was along with us, crawled along with us. Right, and and our and son. Our son, yes. Right, Harry. And then we went on to uh, another bar, and then we were going to go into a third bar, but it had been closed yeah. down. We went to Casa Mexicana. On, yeah. our, on our way there, it had been closed down for by the. Uh, it was very strange. By the IRS. Yeah. It's open now again. Right. But it's great. I'm going to take you while I've been getting ready for this podcast. You've been drinking, and I haven't. I know. We're here at Gabriella's. We're having their delicious margaritas, which we had before. House margarita, a little salt. And we've got a guacamole dip. No straws. Oh, um, uh, you'll be proud of me. The second margarita I ordered, I said, no straw, please. Well, mine has a straw in it. I know, because we, we forget to tell them. So this time I remember. Oh, That's this was the first round. You're, you're on to your second round. Well, you took so long. You had to go get the wire. Then you had to go get the battery. Yeah. I was like, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. sitting here in the bar. Right. So we're, we're going to be talking uh, to two experts on immigration. This will be immigration number two. So right. Barbara right, right, number right. 19. Right. We talked to three immigrants. And now we're going to be talking to Monica Bassani who is a, um, an academic and studying uh, immigration enforcement. And then we talked to uh, lawyer Tyra Mehta. Right. Cyrus I read, Mehta. Yeah, I read some of um, Versani's book, and it was amazing. It was, it was very fascinating. Her book is named? Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines. Right. You know, I have to say, that kind of sounds like, I mean, I think uh, from reading her book, that she's an advocate for immigrants, um, pro-immigrants. No, she is. Yes. So, but that does that title does not sound pro-immigrant. It sounds like local laws, local law enforcement on the front lines. Okay. Well, you know, like you're like, like it's a war. Well, stick stick around for my interview of yeah, uh, Professor yeah. Versani, and right. you'll you'll learn everything. I would suggest it's, it's... You need to know about this book without actually having to read it. I would just suggest that the book like, title is a mis- little misleading and we should tell our listeners that, in fact, it gives a very pro-immigrant um, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go too far into that because that's, no, what, the, that's what, that the was what the interview was about. And we can't really do the interview. Yeah. We, we can't talk about it. So at the beginning of the school year... Yes. You're a, you're a Montessori school teacher. I'm a Montessori school teacher, And yes. I'm a professor at John Jay College. And, uh, How's your classes going? This is like when the year really starts. You know, the Chinese have their new year, um, the, the Jewish fa- people. And th- this is actually the new year for the Jewish um, faith. Yeah, boy, I, um, I, I, really, I really don't like this week. I you know. start with Rosh Hashanah, and you go visit the family. Yeah. And I love my sister, but my God, the drama in that house. Oh, stop. Don't, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not going to go into it. You got to, I think you have to cut that out. I don't think I need to cut it out. She never listens to this podcast uh, anyway. I know, right? No. No, she knows there's drama in the house. There's drama in every house, sweetheart. That's the thing. Not And ours. you know what? You, oh, that's just a, not true, because we had our own We're drama perfect. as soon as we got home that night. We oh, had yeah. a tiff. I couldn't go to sleep for hours. Oh, yeah. I lost a lot of sleep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I apologized, okay. didn't I? <laughs> to I, our I marriage did. counselor. <laughs> no, to you. I apologized no, way I know, before I we went to our marriage counselor. At the marriage oh, That's a whole other episode, that, the fact that we go see a marriage counselor. But I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not shy about that. And it's not because Good. we have a bad marriage. It's not because we are troubled. Makes well, our speak for better. yourself, okay, lady. <laughs> speak for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Some of us are trouble. A family member once right here in yeah. New York City. A family member once said uh, to told me that um, she asked her husband to go to marriage counseling with her, um, and he said, "You know why? I don't need marriage counseling. I, our marriage is fine." Yeah. And they were, you know, suffice it to say, they were divorced soon after. <laughs> You know, I mean, your spouse asks you to go to marriage counseling with you. 
you need to go. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just saying. Well, that's our, okay, look, Al. You know, people have talked to us about doing marriage tips. Yeah. We were married for 38 years. We we're madly in love. And by the way, that waxes and, and wanes. madly. <laughs> We're both mad. <laughs> we're both out of crazy. Our minds. We're having a good good run. Yeah, I mean, look what we're doing. We're podcasting. I know, I know. But people don't do that. My suggestion, my marriage um, advice for this episode is that you need to you need to pay attention to your marriage, like a garden. You know, you need to attend it. Yep. You need to pay attention to your spouse. Yep. You need to you need to take care of them. And keep screwing around. Exactly, and in the marriage, in the marriage. If you're so, let me get to it. If your spouse says, "Can we go to marriage counseling?" I want to go to marriage counseling. You say, "Yes, honey, let's go." All right, absolutely. All you husbands out there, listen to this. Or wives. Or wives. Yeah. If your partner says we have to go to a marriage counselor. If you want to get married, stay married. Or stay married. Right. If you want a divorce, then just yeah, ignore whatever. her. Yeah, just, yeah exactly. Continue so you to ignore her like, you've, like you've been ignoring her your whole life. <laughs> and, then, and, and that's our tip. <laughs> so that's listen. That's the tip for today. By yeah. the way, you want to hear something funny, audience? I want to share with you. Can I listen? <laughs> if you can hear. Okay. That's what it's about. So I've been complaining about my husband's hearing. And he knows for some time. I hear every word you're saying. Right, I know. It's great to have it like microphone right into your ear. Maybe that's the solution. No, but what's funny is that he went. He finally went to a um, a hearing specialist, mm-hmm. and he had his hearing checked. And he and the, the doctor said, "Well, you've lost some of your your high notes. I guess I don't know how you say it, your high frequency, which is like right up here. Yeah, no, I can't hear my. It's can't my hear what voice. I'm it's my voice." He has lost the ability to hear just Wait a my voice. Your Joyce? <laughs> you see, you audience? Keep, you keep saying you're Joyce. You see? Saying, I'm Joyce. Hey, I just want to say something. Though. Am I losing my mind? We, I am mad. I'm know, madly in love. <laughs> mad. We had a great vacation. And now that we're starting back into the grind. I mean, I love my job. No doubt. But now that we're starting back into, you know, getting up at... Like ridiculous times and whatever. Um, I well, just was thinking about vacations because you were talking about you know the, the last this episode. This margarita is very good. I know Gabriella's, 93rd Street, uh, Columbus Avenue, New York City. Primo, primo margaritas, and they have um, they make their own tequila. They do in Tijuana. They make their own tequila, yeah. and you can get a flight of tequilas. Alan's going to bring our daughter. Tuli, yeah, Tuli and I are coming for a date here, and we're yeah. going to have. A, a couple flights, I guess. She'll have hers and I'll have mine. <laughs> you sh- as well it should be. Yeah. As well you should. Yeah. But let me just finish my thought. Okay. I was thinking about vacations, you know, mm-hmm. and how some vacations are very relaxing, like the one we have in Cabo, mm. where I kind of insisted on just... Well, in Todos Santos. In Todos Santos. Yeah, right. not in Cabo. We You're went right. in Cabo. Todos Santos. Yeah. Cabo is a crazy carnival city. Yeah. But you can go to any of those resorts around there and just relax, chill yeah. out. Yeah. And that's what we did um, for our vacation. But you were saying, you know, to go to the Galapagos, that's a, I think you're committing to kind of going out and really, you know, looking at the animals. It's right. much more a- more active, I think. Studying the iguana. Right. Riding the fabulous. turtle. Yeah. Yeah, protecting the turtle eggs. Yeah. Or, or going to Machu Picchu. You know, you've got to really, you got to climb up there and, you know. The only know. climbing I did was climbing up three steps to go to the pool. I know. I had to climb out of the pool. <sighs> yeah. It was nice. It was a really nice vacation. People say, like, what What did you do? And it's like, I'm thinking, I snapped by the pool. We went to a beach. I walked along the beach. We went to a taco stand. I ate and delicious drank. meals. That was it. That was a vacation. And we Did, didn't really see anything except the sunsets. And, and we took pictures of the sunset. Yeah. We have so many pictures of the sun and so many pictures of waves. And we fooled <laughs> around. Okay, stop it. I'm sorry, audience. <laughs> but I want to say, Why think stop about it. it. I don't want to stop it. What about people coming to New York City? That's not restful. No, it's not. It's not restful. You don't you don't stay in your hotel. I mean, look rooms. at this bar. It's like everyone's like hyped up. They're yeah. all kept up. Well, that's what you, you know, do. They're yelling and 
and you go to museums and you go to site you right. go on a sightseeing bus and you, yeah. you're walking around New York City you gotta walk 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 right. so. so we're talking about school I'm, I'm teaching a class oh okay called um, murder on stage and screen isn't that a great title murder on stage you, and screen was that your idea for the title no no it was the chair of the department oh, okay. of English at John Jay great College great idea and it's like I'm I've been one of the ones I've been teaching it because it's so gosh darn interesting um, I want to take that class so, so one of the students read an article by um, Gabrielle Sal Salfati, who we had on the show. Yes. Uh, she's a criminal profiler. And in this article, she made the observation that murder is a social event. It blew the student's mind. A social event? It's a social event between people that know each other, usually. Oh, my gosh. But I don't get that. I don't get how that I know. Well, it, but, but if you think about it, um, the, the, whenever people get together and do stuff together in groups or in dyads or whatever, it's a social event. It happens within a social context. I just Murder thought, is the same thing. I just thought of a great concept for a movie. All right. You decide you're going to murder your wife. Ah. So you invite a bunch of people over for a party. Uh-huh. But you figure out a foolproof plan that's gonna make it look like she died of a heart attack or whatever, she fell, and, and, and you're there amongst all your friends. Amongst I mean, this social event. Or you're gonna kill your husband, let's be fair, women. And it's a social, it's like literally a social event. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. You can steal it, go ahead. And Murder then I, when, when, you put, when, when you guys write it and I go see the movie, I'm gonna totally claim it. Right. But I'm not gonna sue you, it's okay. I'm just gonna, like, it'll just be bragging rights. Anyway, <laughs> it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting class, and uh, this semester the students are interested in it. In the past, they haven't been. Yeah, right. it makes a big. And difference. I wanted to murder them. <laughs> in the past. Not really. I mean, you know, Not really. I okay. could just, you know, I another could, movie. I just wanted to kill them. No, I wanted to. I wanted to strangle them. No, I wanted. The no. teacher of a murder. In, right. in, in film and stage That's right. kills his students. Right, and one, either one by one or like all at once. So you go in, <laughs> you have 30 students there, teacher leaves, but not the students. <laughs> They're all kind of like, you know, glassy-eyed and seeming to be sleeping. Or it could be like that. There's a movie um, where you, if you watch a certain video, you die. Something happens to you. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. There's different kind of movies like that. Wow. So if you go to your class, if you take Alan Winston's <laughs> murder, murder on stage, murder on stage and screen and classroom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> stage and screen and classroom. Oh, professor, I understand the stage and the screen part. What's the classroom part? <laughs> You're gonna find out really soon. <laughs> Be nice. <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. There you go. Pay attention. And turn your phones off. Oh, see, that, that reminds me. That's like setting down the rules. And I was doing that today uh, with my class. Because that's what you do in the beginning of a, a, an elementary school. You yeah. talk about the rules. And I always equate it to society. So, for example, if you, if you run in class, it's like you're speeding. And you'll be charged to fine. So our students earn... They earn what we, we call them credits. It's like school money. And then we have a, a, a shop, which is an experience in which they can, you know, it's like economy and they have to add, you know, they have to add their money up and see if they can buy something. And, and it's a bunch of little donated trinkets that, you know, the headmistress and different teachers and, and ourselves donate. So anyway. I want to donate something. Yeah. Uh, but they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine if they run in class. And they they're going to get a ticket. Oh. Yeah. Doesn't that make sense? It, well, it's a, yeah. It's like learning and learning. Learning right. social skills and learning economics and learning that if you speed, you might get a ticket. So if I, you can't do that in college. Why not? Uh, make it real life. Yeah. What are the consequences? So you, yeah, so you, you leave during my lecture and you walk right in front of me. As you pass by me, you get That's a ticket. That's rude behavior. You get a ticket. You get a timeout. You get a timeout. <laughs> right, you got to sit by the corner. It's yeah. not going to work. Yeah, you just you change their seat. I'm sorry. All right. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking at this point, we've done 20 minutes for this. Uh, in, for this uh, okay. Didn't, haven't we? Doesn't seem Sounds like 20 minutes. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I don't know. 
I'm not watching the time. <laughs> Are you watching the time? No, I'm not watching the time, but it's like I just feel it. You feel it. Right. I feel like, yeah, I feel like this is as much as we've ever talked. And uh, Like really, really talked. Yeah. Right. Really, okay. really talked. We're at Gabriella's, and we're leading into our bar crawl number 20 show with Monica Varsani who's going to be talking about immigration enforcement in these United States in these times. Very interesting. Stick around for that. And following that conversation uh, with uh, Professor Monica Barsani, uh, we'll be talking with Cyrus Mehta, uh, an immigration lawyer. Mehta. Mehta. Uh, Cyrus Mehta. Mehta, yes. Immigration lawyer who, in fact, is an immigrant himself. Exactly. From uh, India. From, from India. And was on Fox News. And we'll play some sound from that. This is Bark Ball Radio coming to you from Gabriella's, and we're going to switch over to, um, to um, I forgot the other name of the bar, Gephardt's. Gephardt's, yeah. We're going to crawl over there. We're crawling over there, so and it's going to be the out. magic of electronics. We just decided that Bark Crawl Radio should crawl. You know so, what I mean? Well, come, on, come, come on out anytime to Gephardt's or Gabriella's. You might see us. Okay, everybody. I'm speaking today with Monica Varsani professor of political science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and she's also at the CUNY Graduate Center. And she co-authored the 2016 book, Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines, uh, published by the University of Chicago Press. And I want to thank uh, Professor Varsani, Monica, uh, for joining Monica on uh, Bar Crawl Radio. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Great. Uh, you and your co-authors uh, were looking at how local police in the interior of the United States, not the border areas, were interacting with certain immigrants, I guess mostly those that look Hispanic, yes? Yeah, that's right. Um, for many, many years in the United States, probably between, I'm going to say the 1880s and really the 1990s, um, immigration was really only a federal government concern. Um you know, there were there were some occasions in which police and sheriffs would get involved with immigration enforcement, but for the most part, you know, you you think of in the in the back in the day, it was the INS, and then after 9/11, it became ICE, uh, with sort of the federal government's enforcement wing, and that was really who was in charge of immigration enforcement. It was really the federal government. So when people thought about immigration enforcement, it was immediately, the image that came to mind was immediately of the U.S.-Mexico border. That's where people mm -hmm. kind of, you know, hinged their ideas of, of mm -hmm. immigration enforcement. But um, in 1996, uh, there were a, a couple of laws passed in Congress that really started to reach out to, um, the idea was to uh, get local police and sheriffs uh, on to the immigration enforcement business as force, what were called force multipliers, like there's only so many federal agents that can be involved unless you hire, you know, thousands and thousands of more, you know, more federal agents. So uh, there was this idea that, hey, let's get local police and local sheriffs involved in immigration enforcement, which will, uh, you know, greatly expand the capacity to do immigration enforcement if we get everyone involved at the local level. So that really started in 1996, but it, it wasn't until the early 2000s after 9-11 that um, police and, and sheriffs started to sort of sign on to these different programs to start doing immigration enforcement. Right. And before that, it was a, a border thing. We didn't reach yes. it so much into the interior to kind of look for immigration problems, quote unquote. It was de just dealt with at the border area. That's right. You know, it was almost uh, one of my colleagues sort of said the way he puts it, Wayne Cornelius at uh, UC San Diego, he would he would say, well, as long as uh, immigrants could get past the, the obstacle course at the border, mm -hmm. Um, they were kind of home free once they were in the interior of the United States because plenty of people and businesses and so forth are very happy to have immigrant uh, workers and immigrant labor. So it became, you know, once you got past that border gauntlet, mm -hmm. you were kind of you were kind of uh, in the in the national labor market, and it was people welcomed welcomed your labor as an immigrant, mm -hmm. um, just as a as a person, right? As a person, your labor was welcome, right? Um, and in certain yeah. areas of the country, needed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. There, are, there are many studies that, that showed that, that immigrant labor um, has played a huge, I mean, a huge outsized role in agricultural labor in the Southwest, mm -hmm. um, rail, railroad labor, um, domestic workers, construction, all these kinds of fields are very heavily dependent on immigrant labor. Right. Can you quickly describe your study? Um, I understood you accessed three national surveys of police practices and um, mm -hmm. 
pulled from examples from seven cities. Could uh, what, yeah. what was your study? Yeah, so you know, we started this study actually about um, golly about ten years ago now. Um, when it was just at this time, like I mentioned earlier, it was really in the early two thousands that. This, those laws that were passed in 1996, um, because of constitution, the way the Constitution is set up, um, local law enforcement has autonomy from the federal government. The federal government couldn't say to local law enforcement, you have to do immigration enforcement. They could just extend to them the option of joining them if they wanted to. So it was in the early 2000s after 9-11 that some law enforcement agencies decided to join the federal government in this, in this project. So here, here uh, I was actually living in Arizona. I was living in Phoenix um, at the time, it's in between 2006 and 2008. It was really in that middle part of the 2000s that a lot of these um, very uh, these were anti-immigrant policies that arose in the 2000s were starting to come to the fore, and a lots of uh, state and local police were starting to sign on to these programs to do immigration enforcement at the local level. But no, there was no data on this issue. Nobody knew. Like, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Should we be doing this? Should we not be doing this? Mm -hmm. So my, my colleagues and I at Arizona State decided to start this study to try to provide some data on this issue to local police and sheriffs. You know, what happens if you get involved in local immigration enforcement? That's when we launched the project, I think, in about 2007 or so is when it really the ideas started to come to the fore. And then uh, the project itself, we did, yeah, we did three national surveys of police chiefs uh, and sheriffs. With about, I'm eyeballing it here, it was about 750 respondents. So we interviewed about 750 police chiefs and sheriffs through surveys. And then we also went to seven um, cities in the United States in different locations that represented different kinds of places and talked to not only local law enforcement in those communities, but immigrant, um, you know, immigrants as well as uh, advocates, you know, church members, church leaders, all the different different folks who would have an interest in this issue. So you, you were noticing a change in the attitude towards immigrants. Did you uh, consider what was manif what was causing those changes or the effect in the society that was, you know, making us look at the immigrant differently from the enforcement perspective? Yeah, well, you know, immigrants have been, been sort of looked at in different ways at different times, you know, initially as a labor source of labor, and then kind of as a, um, a subject of policing. So back in sort of most of the 20th century, they were kind of a, a subject of policing. And like we were saying, border enforcement. But what really changed after 9-11, as you can imagine, was all of a sudden immigrants were seen as a terrorist threat. Whether or not... So you see, nine, you see, I'm sorry, you see 9-11 as a pivotal point in this change in uh, enforcement policy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this, this, it, it really did... Again, like the laws that were passed in 1996 were on the books, but no one, literally no, nobody signed on to them. Not one police force signed on to them until 2002. It was really after 9-11 that their police forces to sort of do something about, about immigration. But I just want to say that there was a real conflation between this idea of a terrorist and then this idea of an immigrant worker. Mm -hmm, <laughs> These mm -hmm. are not the same thing at all. But, mm -hmm. you know, as is often the case in our country, and we see this historically, and we, God, we see it now in the present, too, Immigrants are sort of scapegoated for whatever the thing is at the time that is bad. In the mid-2000s, it was really all about terrorism. Um, and increasingly, I would say that still is out there, definitely, but I think increasingly and particularly under the Trump um, administration, you see this idea of um, immigrants as criminal. Um, and I'd love to talk more about that if you're interested, but this idea of criminality and immigration, that's yeah. really kind of, I think, what's dominant right now. There still are a very large number of Mexican undocumented immigrants in the United States, but I believe uh, the second largest group of undocumented immigrants is actually Chinese. But you don't hear about the dangerous Chinese immigrant, mm -hmm. <laughs> the mm -hmm. way that the way that sort of Mexican immigrants and Muslim immigrants are scapegoated. Um, so it's really, it is a racially motivated environment that we, we find ourselves in right now. The local enforcement of immigration is quite uh, bifurcated or complex or quite different mm -hmm. from, from one area to another, even maybe even from one side of the street to another, I think one example mm -hmm. used. What are the rules regarding a local police person stopping a person mm -hmm. uh, who's, who's suspect of being an illegal immigrant? Mm -hmm. And I'm using yeah, illegal. Question. I'm using illegal. You all use unauthorized. And I want to talk about that also. Yeah. Well, OK. So about the rules first. So that's so this is kind of the crux of our of, this is one of the, the central you know, issues that we looked at in this study that 
back in again the mid the mid 20th century up through the 1990s there was kind of give or take one national approach to immigration um the federal government was really in charge and set the rules and that was kind of that i mean again you can find exceptions here and there but that was more or less what was going on mm-hmm. but in this in this current context sort of like 2002 to the present what we've had develop and this is a word that we use in our in our book is this multi-jurisdictional patchwork so there's a patchwork of, of approaches across the country. There's, there isn't one unified approach across the country. Um, now that, now that there's been this, this, um, offer to local governments to get involved. So you have everything across the gamut. You have localities that are very, um, into enforcing immigration at the local level and are gung ho about it. And I mean, the most egregious example of that was Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona. Um, the sheriff, the area around Phoenix. And then there's a lot of localities and place cities, counties that aren't doing, don't have sort of official policies on immigration. Um, and then there's many places now that they're in the news a lot recently that are informally called sanctuary cities, but mm-hmm. sort of more formally called um, non They're places that have non-cooperation ordinances where they basically said, look, we're not going to, we're not going to get involved in, in immigration enforcement. Uh, we're not going to help the federal government, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that this is what you get is this full range of approaches where you have, you know, a county that is pro-enforcement, so they want to do immigration enforcement, but there's a city within that county that's a sanctuary city. So you get these overlapping and kind of strange um, competing approaches to immigration. And I, I do want to mention really quickly that my colleague Marie Provine, who's the lead author on the book and a, a good friend, and we're working on another project now, she and I started this project initially. And the reason we started it is because we went to an immigration rights uh, meeting in Phoenix back in, God, I think it was 2006 or something. And this woman stood up and said um, in Spanish, she said, you know, I'm having a really hard time because um, well, she didn't say this part, but Phoenix at the time was a sanctuary city, and Maricopa County, which was the county that in which Phoenix is located, where Sheriff Joe was in charge, is a very heavily enforcement-oriented place. So she said, you know, I have a really hard time um, knowing how to drive to work, because if I drive through the county, then I might be stopped, and if I drive through the city, I, it's a friendly environment. So when I look at a police cruiser, I have to make sure I don't know, is it a sheriff's police police cruiser or is it a police, you know, the police, uh, Phoenix police cruiser. So she was talking about this really strange experience of not knowing, like she had to plan her drive to work <laughs> to sort of like understand this overlapping and weird patchwork of, of enforcement was we all of a sudden we might Marie and I were like, well, that's God, that's really strange. You know, what's yeah. going on here? And that's where this project got its start. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It, it seems like without any overarching federal or countrywide policy on immigration enforcement, that the local police, whatever their attitude is, they become the default because they're not getting any guidance yeah. from above. Well, I mean, in theory, there's a national policy, um, but the national policy is to allow localities to start making more and more decisions around this stuff, even though they are technically still under the control of the federal government. So mm-hmm. it's a funny it's a funny moment in, you know, in, in federalism. And, you know, there's been lots of debates over states' rights and federal rights and stuff over the years. Um, and, you know, some of them have very dire consequences, but I have to say, when you're talking about somebody getting deported or jailed for an indefinite period of time, um, separated from their families, mm-hmm. uh, child taken away. Years, yeah, child taken away. I mean, these are, this is not just academic. This is really serious stuff for people's lives. Right. Um, and uh, we do mention this, I think, in the, in the book as well, that um, a very large number of families in the United States you know, we often think of undocumented people as like, oh, it's them over there, and then we're the citizens over here. But there's actually a very large number of families that are what are called mixed status families, where you'll have like a mom that's undocumented and the dad who's a citizen, and then the kids are citizens, or maybe one of the kids was born elsewhere and they're undocumented. You know, so we're like, it's it's mm-hmm. a complicated thing. It really can tear families in half, um, yeah. which is why it's an important issue to, to understand and to pay attention to. It is enormously complex. In your, in your study, Policing Immigrants, mm-hmm. you indicated that local police in the U.S. are either eager to enforce the ICE-type interdiction of, um, of unauthorized immigrants, or they mm-hmm. actively resist. But then you also say there's this third group, which is a much larger group, which mm-hmm. quietly fall in between. Did you talk to any of these in-between people? How do they make their decisions on 
how to enforce? Yeah, so the places that have policies that are written down and sort of enforced by the chief or the sheriff or what have you, there's lots of those localities and jurisdictions, but there are these all these places that don't have like a formal policy. But what ends up happening in the places that don't have a formal policy um, is that there's a lot of um, officer discretion that comes into play, and discretion is a is is central to police work. I mean, you can't do policing and law enforcement without some discretion mm-hmm. for all a variety of issues. I mean, you how mean many individual heard... discretion, individual yeah, decision indivi- making. Yeah. Yeah, individual officer discretion. I mean, how many of us have been pulled over for, you know, going five miles over the speed limit and not get a ticket? That's discretion, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this is in places that don't have uh, like a strict policy around what an officer is supposed to do. You get a lot of um, individual officer discretion and that can go in both directions. It can be, you know, uh, enforcement oriented or not. And um we had a really interesting one of the case studies that we that we the places that we went for one of our case studies was um, in North Carolina in the Research Triangle area in Raleigh and Durham and so forth. The city of Raleigh um, had uh, did not have a policy around immigration enforcement, mm-hmm. but the county did. So there was this funny situation where if police officers who were kind of enforcement oriented, who wanted to arrest immigrants, mm-hmm. they, they could arrest them, but they wouldn't be arresting them in the spirit of any like law in their city. But they knew that once they were arrested, they would be going to the county jail where the county had an enforcement mechanism in place. And then they would be screened for immigration and potentially deported. So here was a city where, generally speaking, was a more progressive city around immigration. But if you had an officer that sort of, you know, was a little more enforcement oriented, they knew that if they arrested folks without like who didn't have driver's licenses, for instance, which is a really common reason for people getting pulled into um, for immigration screening, that they would go to the county. Um, yeah, I, you know, you using the word discretion, which almost makes it sound nice. Uh, this, it's, this sounds <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you've, you're becoming a legal authority. You're just like, it's, it's a decision should be made by our political leaders who are elected into it. And here an individual policeman is kind of like is, is doing it. I know there's definitely problems with that. This is uh, Bar Crawl Radio, and I am talking with Professor Monica Varsani about uh, her book and her co-author's book, Policing Immigrants. Why use the word unauthorized rather than the word illegal? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, the, I mean, how it kind of breaks down, <clears throat> excuse me, politically, is that uh, folks who are more um, anti-immigrants or uh, enforcement-oriented tend to use the word illegal. Um, and then folks who are a little bit more on the progressive end of things or, uh, yeah, more pro-immigrant um, have not liked using that, uh, that term because the idea, if you say an, an illegal immigrant, it implies that the immigrant is somehow illegal <laughs> as opposed to... You mean the, to, state, the state of immigrant? Yeah, like the actual, like the human being is illegal. Right. And um, I don't know if you've seen, ever seen those signs that some people hold up at rallies that say, you know, no, 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 no human being is illegal. It's this idea that, um, mm-hmm. and this is, just, this is just about law in general, that it's not the person that's illegal, it's the act that they've committed that is potentially against the law, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this phrase, undoc- this phrase, illegal immigrant, implies that like the human being, him or herself, is, is, is against the law, <laughs> which doesn't, you know, it, it's a certain kind of political statement. You're making a human being illegal. And um, for those who are um, more progressive about the topic, uh, you know, for many years, people use the term undocumented. People stopped using that term, too, because a lot of uh, people who are uh, here, you know, without authorization, illegal immigrants, unauthorized, whatever you want to call them, they actually do have a lot of documentation. A lot of people have pay stubs and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the current term of choice is, is unauthorized. They've just been they're immigrants, but their their presence here in the United States has not been authorized by the federal government. Right. Do you have any other stories of anyone that you came across? Yeah, I mean, uh, our our study was actually more on the police. I understand. So, yeah, yeah, we didn't. But but I do have um, one of my one of my colleagues. She's at the University of Chicago, Angela Garcia. So she interviewed um, over 100 immigrants and in Southern California. And in the cities, um, there's 21 sanctuary cities, at least at the time of her study, that uh, are in the Los Angeles region. So she interviewed uh, these people in uh, in a number of different places and. 
in um, these places that were considered sanctuary cities, um, undocumented residents were fairly willing to interact with police. So if there was a crime that was committed or domestic violence or any, any, anything you can think of where police might get involved, she found that those immigrants were uh, not worried about interacting with the police. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast, in cities where uh, that had some kind of partnership with ICE or that were enforcement-oriented, um, she found that people were very nervous about interacting with the police mm-hmm. because they thought, well, even if um, even if I, uh, you know, have done nothing wrong, I might get screened for immigration violations and get deported. And obviously people don't want to get deported. So um, there was one person that she had um, interviewed that had uh, witnessed a carjacking uh, attempt. This person had, had yelled and shouted and tried to disrupt the scene. But then as soon as the, the scene was, you know, as soon as the carjacking had been thwarted, he ran off and didn't want to be an official witness in the crime because he was worried that the police would, you know, ask, oh, are you are you an immigrant? Are you not an immigrant? And then he might be deported. So yeah. I think, um, you know, time and time again, if you look at scholarship and research that's been done on um, cities that have non-cooperation ordinances or, you know, what are some called, sometimes called sanctuary cities, public safety is actually uh, upheld more strongly in those jurisdictions than in places that have uh, immigration cooperation with the federal government. Right. And that was that was certainly something that we found in our study, too. Right. But certainly yeah. we, live, we live in a country where it seems as if the future is really unknown as to the direction that we're going to go in. Um, I mean, New York's yeah. a very liberal state, but, uh, but yeah. we have a lot of Republican conservatives who would support, um, you know, heavy enforcement of immigrants. And uh-huh. Depending on who's elected, we're always kind of in an, a, a, a bit of a mayhem uh, yeah. without without that that guidance. What is is there a connection between the American democracy, law enforcement, and how we view immigrants in this in this country? For many years, immigrants, and I'm thinking back to like the 1800s, mm-hmm. even throughout parts of the of the 20th century, immigrants were seen as a good thing. You know, hey, mm-hmm. we need. We need people to populate our lands. I mean, that could, we can talk about Native Americans and all that mm-hmm. in this issue as well. But there was this idea of, yeah, we need bodies. We need people to be part of our national project. Um, immigrants are a good part of, of what we are. They bring new ideas and they bring labor and they do jobs we don't want to do. And, you know, mm-hmm. and their, their kids are Americans, you know, and all mm-hmm. this, this kind of thing is still part of very much part of our um, national story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, running alongside that since the very beginning, and there's some really interesting quotations from Benjamin Franklin about those dangerous Germans that are coming over, and they're going to Germanize all of us. And, you know, <laughs> this is back to like the 1700s. Mm-hmm. There's been an anti-immigrant thread running through our entire, you know, our entire history as well. Um, and real concerns about, um, you know, them and us, and they're tainting us, and they're taking our jobs, and you know, I, I'm working on a paper right now that's actually located in the 1930s, and you, you see exactly the same phrases being used um, then that you, that you hear now about immigrants and the dangers that they're posing and all these sorts of things, mm-hmm. and also the good side. So it's like I teach classes on immigra- immigration politics, and my students are always, you know, both amazed and, and amused at some level at, like, how these, this language, both about pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant language, just comes around and goes around over and over and over and over and over. It's been part of our national story. Monica Bersani, thank you so much for um, talking welcome. with us. This has been wonderful. I know there's a lot more that we can say about this, and maybe we can do uh, have another conversation on a future Barkwell radio show. That'd be great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Cyrus Mehta is a complete immigration lawyer. He represents both corporations and individuals all over the world in business and employment immigration, family immigration, naturalization, federal court litigation, and asylum. He's the former chair of the Ethics Committee of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, an active member of the American Bar Association's Commission on on Immigration, on the board of the New York Immigration Coalition, former chair of the Board of Trustees of the American Immigration Council, as well as the former chair of the Committee on Immigration and Nationality Law of the New York City Bar Association. Whoa. Okay. So it's clear that Mr. Mehta 
is an authority on immigration law and its practice in the United States. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you, sir, to Bar Crow Radio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for yes. having me on the show. Do you remember the moment when you decided I'm going to be an immigration lawyer rather than a, you know, some other kind of lawyer? It was relatively early. I was doing corporate law, and there came a time when I realized that uh, I could really make a mark in the field if I did something I truly loved. And I started kind of learning about immigration law myself, and... Um, and, and then I felt that this would be the field that I should get into because I'll succeed in it. Right. Are so you, so you, you're going, going back. Uh, are you an immigrant? I'm an immigrant myself. So the immigrant experience also motivated me to become an immigration lawyer. And you're an immigrant from? I'm an immigrant from India. Mm -hmm. uh, how long? Uh, when did you come here? I came in 1987 as a student. And then one thing led to another, and I'm still here in New York. Right. Let's get with the basics. I mean, I'm going real basic, and I realize you can no way you can answer this question in the time that we have. What is immigration law? Immigration law in the United States is very complex. All right, it's interesting to say immigration law in the United States, which is saying it's different than immigration law, say, in India. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a well-developed body of law. It's developed over more than 100 years. There's a very complex statute known as the Immigration and Nationality Act. There are lots of implementing rules and regulations. It's administered by many government agencies, such as the USCIS, ICE, the State Department, and the Labor Department. Therefore, when I view immigration law, I view it as very complex. And my goal is to try to make it easy for my clients to understand and how I would be able to help them under the law. Okay. So, and, and like any lawyer, your job partially is to help your clients understand the situation that they're in. Absolutely. Whether they're corporate clients or they're individual clients. Yes, that is, that is the goal, is to first kind of explain to them what situation they're in and then how we can achieve their objectives under the law and also manage expectations. That's very important because not every case can be won. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, it's, so you have to have a knowledgeable client in order for you to do your job. That would, true, make it, that would make it easy, but we've also had clients that are not very knowledgeable, and it's incumbent upon the lawyer to communicate to the client so that this client would understand what his or her situation is and how we can help that person. What would be an example of a typical client of yours? Maybe not a corporate, but an individual. A typical individual client could be somebody who might be facing removal proceedings and requires representation in immigration court and before an immigration judge. Going before an immigration judge is like actually going in a regular court because there is a government lawyer who is trying to deport this person and trying to make a case that right. this person should be deported. And the deportation statutes are even more complex than getting a work visa. Explaining that to the client, explaining the client's rights under the Immigration and Act, and even under the U.S. Constitution, is, is very important. And then explaining what the strategy will be, and sometimes one has to actually make different types of um, goals for the clients, um, and, and to get the client's consent in terms of what type of path to take in the immigration process, what kind of defenses to assert, and what kind of defenses to waive. That, those are very important. So a typical client in removal proceedings would also potentially be applying for asylum. Asylum law has become very complex, more so under the Trump administration that's trying to gut uh, asylum grounds, especially for people fleeing domestic violence, uh, people who belong to social groups such as gangs or LGBT type of groups, and, and they are fleeing that type of violence. So explaining the complexities of the law and how it is changing under the Trump administration is a particular challenge for an immigration lawyer, but it's not insurmountable. It can be done. You can explain immigration law as if you were explaining it to a, a four-year-old or five-year-old child. That should be the goal. And, and then basically you want to get your client to make informed choices in right. terms of how to proceed with the representation. Is right. the onus on the client to prove their case? 
like in a regular trial, the, the prosecution has to prove someone's guilty of something. That's a very good point. There are some aspects in a deportation hearing where the burden of proof is on the government to establish that the foreign national is removal as charge. It's not our goal to prove that the person is removable. It's the government's burden. Right. But once the government meets that burden and the client wants to apply for relief, such as asylum or adjustment of status in removal proceedings, then the burden is, is on the client to establish that he or she is eligible under a preponderance of evidence standard. Wow. It seems to me that if I commit murder and you're my lawyer, um, my options and the kind of what I'm going to be accused of and the law that applies is so much simpler than it is if I'm um, an unauthorized immigrant. I, I wouldn't like to compare myself to a criminal defense lawyer. I think every lawyer plays a, a role in the justice system to defend and represent clients. But I would, I would say that uh, when an immigrant is facing removal proceedings, it may be a little more complex because you, look, you need to look at the case holistically. What are the kinds of relief that this person have to uh, thwart the removal process? Is this person likely to get married to a U.S. citizen down the road? Is that something that one can assert? Whereas in a murder trial, you just basically want to wait for the government to establish the case. Right. right. What, what, are the, what are the basic? I mean, you made it really basic. I'm four years old. Um, what is it that I, I, the unauthorized immigrant, need to show the court that will get me a positive outcome? Well, that's very complex, but you need yeah, to I, kind I of... I know it is. Yeah, yeah, it's really complex. So to explain it to a four-year-old child, first we need to see whether the charges can stand, whether there was any defect in the way my client was charged. If there was some kind of constitutional defect, like a Fifth Amendment violation, if the agent tried to extract information from my client in violation of his or her Fifth Amendment due process rights, I can move to suppress the... the grounds against uh, my client and try to terminate the removal proceeding. Right, and there's all kinds of immigra immigration charges that could be brought up against Yes, me. There, are, there are various kinds, but there are some pretty generic charges. And like, for instance, crossing the border. One main charge would be that you're not authorized to be in the United States, so therefore you're removable. That's one of the most common charges, yeah. and that's very easy for the government to establish. But there are other charges, because the client may be a legal permanent resident, somebody who has a green card, has a right to live in the United States for his or her whole, whole life, but now has a criminal conviction. You're now basically charging this person with a removable ground based on a criminal conviction. And that's entirely different. So it's complex, and it really depends on the context of whatever charge is there. And Absolutely, and that's only the removal process. But when you're dealing with business immigration, there are other complexities that okay. we have to deal with. Let, let's turn to, to the, the question of, and you've been doing immigration law for a while. How, how long have you been, uh, been in this business? Almost uh, 30 years now. Okay, so before 9-11? Yes, much before. All right. Would you say there's been a change in the culture, the context in which you do law since 9-11, since Bush, since Obama, since Trump? Good questions. Immigration law has always been difficult. It's never been a cakewalk at any point of time in my career, even before 9-11. There was never any kind of halcyon days when it was easy to get an immigration status. But after 9-11, what really happened was that everything has been viewed through the prism of security. Even a garden variety marriage to a U.S. citizen that looks good and is normal and regular, there's always going to be a security check. That's what changed after 9-11. But the general architecture of our immigration laws and systems has remained the same. After Obama came in, again, immigration was no cakewalk. But the difference between Trump and Obama, Trump hasn't changed the immigration law, but during Obama's time, the officials who were in charge of immigration policy were not mean-spirited. They were not anti-immigrant. They were not xenophobes. They may have still been law enforcement-minded, no doubt. But they always wanted to develop policies that would have a law enforcement orientation, but would also benefit immigrants. That was Obama's approach. Under Trump, we're not seeing anything that would benefit immigrants, because immigrants are viewed 
as uh, people who are undesirable. So if you're an undocumented immigrant, you're now conflated with being a criminal. If you're a legal immigrant, they still want to get rid of you because they feel that any kind of immigration is not good for the future of the United States. Any kind? Any kind of immigration. Whether you come from Ireland or from Mexico? Most legal immigrants don't come from Ireland anymore. They do come from Mexico and from Asia. And let's, let's put it bluntly. Uh, Trump has to cater to his base. He has promised his base that he will curb immigration. And the motivating factor there is to promote white nationalism, to keep the United right. States white. And uh, basically, uh, that is the subtext. And that's why initially the attack was on undocumented immigration. But now there is an attack on all kinds of immigration. Even legitimate legal immigration is under attack. I've noticed in the news that the immigration law hasn't changed, but the fervor to um, deport, the fervor to arrest, to find people, like uh, uh, having them picking up someone because they are driving without a license, so then they screen them and they find out that they're unauthorized. Absolutely. Under the Obama administration, ICE officers were asked to exercise discretion and to only go after people who were a national security threat, but to leave alone people who had families, because it just is not practical to deport uh, 12 million people. The government doesn't have that kind of funding. Under Trump, the gloves were off. Trump gave orders to ICE officers to do whatever is necessary to deport people. As a result of which, there have been a lot of excesses Fortunately, one can still go to court and seek redress. But the point I want to make is that the law has not changed under Trump because Trump cannot really get Congress to change the law. You need to have a supermajority in the Senate. And so far, nothing has really shifted with regards to the actual statute. What they're trying to do is to change policy. So even in business immigration, make it more difficult for people to get a routine H-1B visa, which is the garden variety work permit right. for foreign skilled nationals to work for companies in the United States. And it's something that U.S. Um, companies want, that they need some of these workers. They definitely need them. There was a New York Times article that got published yesterday on Labor Day, very timely, which stated that companies from healthcare to information technology are crying out because they can't hire the foreign workers they need and therefore they're hurting very badly. The Trump attitude uh, is reflected in Fox News. You were recently, or about, I think about a year ago, you were with uh, Tucker Carlson. And I just wanted to play a bit of the um, interview he had with you uh, and then uh, uh, get your reaction. Here, here, here's a piece of it. It just may be time for us to overhaul our approach to legal immigration. That's the question. We're joined now by New York immigration attorney Cyrus Maida. Cyrus, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. So no honest person describes all immigrants as bad people. A lot of them are great people. Some of my favorite people actually are immigrants. But by the same token, no honest person denies that some people come to this country for the wrong reasons and do horrible things when they're here. Isn't it lying to pretend that all immigrants are more impressive than native-born Americans, which is the claim? You know, Tucker, crime is committed in all societies. It's yes. committed by a few immigrants, but it's also committed by Americans. Yes. And when people commit crimes, law enforcement takes care of it, and the criminal justice system has to deal with it. But to blame all immigrants for the crimes of a few is not becoming of America as a country of immigrants. We are focusing on few immigrants who commit crimes, and of course my heart bleeds for the victims uh, of these crimes. But on the other hand, we have millions of immigrants that benefit the United States, and we have to focus on that rather than just focusing really? on, is, on so those that's few your determination? So I guess you're in charge of what we focus on now. Yeah, so, 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 so there was uh, your uh, interview, it was hardly an interview, uh, with uh, Tucker Carlson. The title, the YouTube title of that little piece is Immigration Lawyer Gets Tucked In. And, and my question for you, how is it possible that you didn't get ticked off? Because um, he was not making logical statements, but we, we don't have to talk about that. What, what about this, you know, this nativist, ultra-conservative attitude? And, and um, what's your takeaway from that interview? 
after I've heard this interview many months after the fact, actually I'm quite pleased with the way I did it and I'm glad I didn't get ticked off. But one can be firm and I think I did try to hit back at the end of the interview uh, when he focused on one of my tweets you and did. I said I love the fact that you uh, focused on my tweet and I stand by it. Um, right. And he thought he was going to embarrass me but I was pleased that he did actually quote my tweet. Right. This is Tucker Carlson's approach. Whenever he gets a guest on immigration, that's always the standard line that he kind of uh, wins. And I think uh, if one watches the subtext of what I'm trying to say, and this has also been reinforced by the father of the young woman who was killed recently in Iowa, mm -hmm. you got to stop politicizing the deaths of Americans that have been caused by immigrants because it's really a law enforcement issue. A person could be subjected to a crime by an American or by an immigrant. And you've got to kind of not make political capital out of it. And this young woman's father wrote this beautiful op-ed and we have to respect the father's wishes. And I think the father's response should also be uh, read by Tucker Carlson and he should also lay off and not, you know, uh, create this uh, whole notion that immigrants should be conflated with crime all the time. Yep. You know, someone talked to me about that today and talked about how moved she was by the fact that this father, in their time of grief, still had the presence of mind to say that this is wrong. You're, you're, you know, what you're doing is wrong. I think it's really admirable. It's yes. a very powerful piece, and I too was very moved by the uh, father's op-ed. And, and I think this is something that should be a lesson for everybody. And as we kind of move on and when we look back at the Trump administration, the father's piece should be required reading in schools right. by students. That's amazing. This, this country seems to be moving towards isolation, to ultra-conservatism, to, to nativism. Is this attitude prevalent in other first world countries? I wouldn't necessarily agree that this country is moving to isolationism. It may be by a few, because that's, that's how Trump wants to view this country. But we live in New York City, we also have California, we have um, cities even in conservative parts of the United States that also believe um, in the value that immigrants, immigrants bring to the United States. So right. I, I still feel that uh, there is this ambivalence right now I don't believe the majority of the American public want to drive out all immigrants. Uh, if you look at polls, a majority of the American public want to bring about reform with our immigration system. Therefore, I still feel that there is hope in the United States. And this is a fever that will ultimately break. There is a trend all over the world to uh, go after immigrants. We just saw today in Sweden, you have an anti-immigrant party in Sweden that could win the elections. Again, I feel this is all a trend, and ultimately, you really can't drive away immigrants because the bottom line is that immigrants do benefit societies. There is an aging population in Western societies. The social security systems are being depleted. If you want to replenish that, you need to have immigrants who will do that, who will do the labor, who will bring in skills at all levels. If we had open borders, it would be increased by an incredible amount, like double. What do you think about open borders? That is really not the goal of immigration advocates right now. What it's, is the goal? The goal right now is to have fair and humane immigration laws, and at the same time, enforce the laws when it's necessary to enforce them. Certainly there is the practical sense that immigrants do help the economy of the country. They bring in knowledge, they bring in uh, experiences, they bring in culture. But is there something else about immigrants besides the economic thing that um, is, a, is a quality of the United States? Absolutely. America is a nation of immigrants. Immigrants have come to the United States and founded America and America has always been great. It doesn't need to become great. Exactly. <laughs> in uh, Megan McCain's words, because of immigrants that have come into the United States through the centuries, immigration is in the DNA of this nation. It's part of the fabric of the United States. It what makes us a country, and it what makes us a moral nation. 
And I think with that, I want to thank Cyrus Mehta, immigration lawyer, for joining us here on Bar Crow Radio. It was an education, and uh, it was kind of spiritual also in a way. <laughs> thank you. It was great being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's our show. We urge you to subscribe to Bar Crawl Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And our programs are streamed every weekday on Upper West Side Radio at 5 p.m. Becky and I love to hear from our listeners, so please email us at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. Tell us what you think of our show. Thank you.